Indeed, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. If you're unfamiliar where that is, you can find the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians 15, and we are going to be reading verses 20 to 28, but looking more particularly at 22 to 28. For a little bit of context, Paul is in the middle of an argument trying to convince the Corinthians who have been taught otherwise foolishly and heretically, that there is no resurrection of the dead, uh, that Christ has not been raised, and that we will not be raised. But that, of course, as we believe and we confess, is not true. Christ has been raised. Amen. And we will also be raised at the end of this age. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20, and going to verse 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God. Kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. We're going to work all that out. There's a lot of subjections, a lot of hymns, what's it talking about. Hopefully we're going to figure it out by the end of this message. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. God and Father, as we have now read your word, we pray that in the power of your spirit, we would understand your word, and that we would be able to know the implications of it, that we would know how this word spoken to us today needs to take an effect in the way that we live our lives. Lord, show us Jesus in this text. Show us that there is salvation only in Christ alone. Our salvation now, but also our salvation in the future when he comes again, that it is only in Christ that we may truly be saved. Lord, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. My brothers and sisters, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, you win. But what do we win? 
What does Jesus win for us? Brothers and sisters, we are in a war. We are in a war that has started from the beginning of the world and will continue until the end of the world. And this war is not only physical, it's not only earthly, but it is indeed very spiritual. And if we don't understand that we are part of this war, then we don't even understand the reality that we're living in. We don't understand why, why we have been put here. We don't really understand what Christ did on the cross. We don't really understand God's purpose in this world. If we don't know that we are part of a great and cosmic drama. Now when I say drama, maybe you think of great movies that you've seen. In my mind, the first thing that comes to mind is Lord of the Rings. A great battle of good versus evil. In many ways, that, it's an epic. You have Sauron on one side, and you have the free people of Middle-earth on the other side. Good versus evil. It's epic. It's dramatic. But there's a big difference between Lord of the Rings and the war that we're talking about. Our war, our war is real. The good versus evil in this world is true and real. Think about the drama that we are a part of. Think about the drama that our scriptures give to us. In the beginning, God created a perfect and beautiful world. It was blameless. It was good. A great opening scene to an amazing drama. And then a conflict begins. Sin enters the world. Evil comes into the creation. And the whole creation is changed. Humanity is changed. The ground changes. Conflict has entered in. And now there must be a resolution. And immediately God says in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And then from the pages of scripture, we see scene after scene, seasons after seasons of men and women coming up and trying to engage in this war of good versus evil, but time and time again, when we're getting so close, the battle isn't done. We're so close with Noah. Everybody else in the world who's evil dies, and we're left with one righteous man and his family. But he's not perfect. Sin continues. Evil persists. We get so close with Abraham. We get so close with David. We get so close with people, kings after kings. And yet, we never get to see the resolution of the drama of the war that we're in until Jesus. The greater Noah, the greater Moses, the greater Abraham, the greater David. Who once and for all won the war. For you and for his glory. But yet the battle so rages on, does it not? And we confess in sola, scripture, uh, sola Christus that it is only in Christ alone that we are saved. But we can talk about salvation in a few different ways. We have been saved. We are being saved right now. And we will be saved when Christ comes again. And in all of those different facets of salvation, Christ alone is the means by which we are saved. 
But this drama, this war that we're a part of is also very different than a movie. Because in a movie, you're sitting there, you're eating popcorn, you're biting your fingernails. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Who's going to win? Evil, good. Evil, good. Who's going to win? But in this story, in this drama, we already know the ending. Jesus wins. And again, because Jesus wins, we also know that you win. We win in Christ. There is no competition. Jesus wins. All his enemies will be put under his feet. God shall have dominion. That's the theme of this message. God shall have dominion. And we'll see this in three ways. That's four. Three ways. That one, God's citizens will be raised. God's citizens will be raised. Two, that God's enemies will be destroyed. And three, God will reign as the true king. So God shall have dominion. First point, God's citizens will be raised. And we look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. First thing we got to ask, who is the all that Paul is talking about? We can look around us and see, of course, that all people indeed die. But we can't say that all people shall be made alive in Christ. Who is Paul talking about? Well, given the context, it is clear that the all that Paul is talking about is the believers. All believers continue to die in Adam. But also all believers will be raised in Christ. Adam, the first man ever to be made, was made a representative of all humanity. We call him a federal head. And so as Adam fell so we all fall. As Adam died, so we all die. And that's good news, because just as Adam was our representative in us dying, that's not good news. But the good news is, is that in the same way, Christ is our representative, our federal head. And so that in Christ, death is not the final say, but life, eternal life. Resurrection is the final say. So as in Adam all die, so also Christ shall all be made alive. Notice too, if I can be a little grammatical with you, a little nerdy, it says that all, for in Adam all die. That's an active verb, meaning that we are involved in the dying. It's because of us that we die. We have the sin inherited to us by Adam, but then we go on sinning, and the death that we die is because of us. It's an active verb. But it says, in Christ, all shall be made alive. That's passive. Meaning that we don't do that. Christ does that. God does that for us. We don't have any power in and of ourselves to raise ourselves from the dead. It's a bit of a no-brainer. We need God. We need Christ. And so, all in Adam die. All in Christ shall be made alive. And there's an order, it says. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So first is Christ. He has been raised from the dead. On the third day, amen, as a first fruit. Now, this is a language of harvesting. This is a language of farming. And this, dear brothers and sisters, ought to give us a lot of confidence in what Paul is saying here. Because the first fruit means that the rest is still coming. 
necessarily the rest must still come. So Christ is taken as that first fruit of the resurrection. In the Gospels, we see Christ in his glorified body, a resurrected body, what we will be at the end of the age. And so as surely as Christ has been raised from the dead, which we believe, which we put our hope in, which we put our confidence in, if Christ has been raised from the dead, so surely you will be raised from the dead. That you will die, that currently in our bodies right now, we are wasting away, but when Christ comes again, we will be raised. Those who belong to Christ will be raised at his coming. And so we see in God's dominion, its citizens will be raised. God will have kingdom citizens who will be raised from the dead and will glorify him for eternity. And I hope this fills us with hope, with confidence that this body may die, but we will be raised in glory, we'll be raised in honor. And just to give a picture of what that really looks like, I want to look further in the passage and, and, and see how Paul describes this resurrected body. Verse 42 says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. What is sown in natural body, it will be raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. This is the glory that awaits all of us who put our faith in Christ alone. That as surely as Christ was raised from the dead, so you too will be raised from the dead in glory and in honor and immortality. And so we sang the words just now from a mighty fortress is our God. The body this world may kill, but God's truth abideth still that though we die, we will be raised. And so we can say with Paul that dying is truly falling asleep. It's as if falling asleep because we won't stay in the ground. We won't stay dead, but we will be raised. We can say, too, that because of this, nothing really can separate us from the love of God. If there's anything in this world that we would think could separate us from God, it would be death. It would be death. Persecution might bring us closer to God. Sickness might bring us closer to God. Losing loved ones might bring us closer to God. But when we die, how could that be that we're still connected with the love of God? Well, because we will be raised. Because Christ will not leave us in the ground, but will come back for you and raise you from the dead. And we'll come back to this application in just a few moments. But if we confess, as we did in the song, that the body of the world may kill, but God's truth abides still, does not then allow us to take kingdom risks? For God's glory and for the sake of his name. What can man do to us if we have the resurrection of the dead? What can man do to us if we will be with God in glory and in eternity? We'll come back to that. But the hope of the resurrection ought to make us confident to take kingdom risks. But point two, 
Not only will God's citizens be raised, but also God's enemies will be destroyed. We confess with Philippians 2 that Christ is the king. That being raised, he was seated at the right hand of God. And that now he has the whole world under his feet. Our passage quotes Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. Two passages that, that say that the anointed one of God, everything will be under his feet. Psalm 8 speaks about the whole creation. And Psalm 110 speaks about his enemies. All earth, all the world is under the, under the feet of Christ as king, as king of his kingdom. And as we've been talking about, this king, our King Jesus, is in war, is at war. That there are enemies from without and from within the people of God who want to take you away from the kingdom of God, who want to take away your citizenship, who want to take your life, not just temporarily, but everlastingly. And so Christ, as your king, is at war for you. And now when a kingdom... Is that war? What does a good king do? A good king doesn't sit behind the walls. A good king doesn't recline, eat grapes, drink wine, have people fan him with with branches. That's not a good king. That's a lazy king. But our King Jesus is a good king. That as his people are being attacked and warred upon, He goes out, and he defeats, and he conquers, and he protects his own people. And his enemies will be destroyed. It says this in our text. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. I ask you, is this spiritual enemies? Or is this earthly enemies that we're talking about? Yes, it is both. But we must not forget that it is the spiritual war that is most ultimate. It's the spiritual war that is happening all throughout history, and the earthly battles are just symptomatic of that war. And so, yes, we have earthly enemies in this life. We can talk about how... The ideology of transgenderism or LGBTQ is nothing but a rebellion against the natural order that God has created. We can talk about how when our churches were shut down, that that was a revolt against God's call to worship him. We can talk about that. But we must be clear, first and foremost, that our enemy is the devil. That our enemy is the devil and his demons. And they, in their power in this world, are able to use earthly means in order to attack the church. The devil and his demons cannot receive the grace of God. Our leaders can. The LGBTQ community can receive the grace of God. If they put their faith in Christ alone, they turn from being our enemies to being our siblings. And so we must remember time and time again that our truest enemy is the devil and his minions. And that is the rule and the authority that Christ has come to defeat. 
But just so that we're not thinking that it's a very particular enemy, it says this, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So that includes spiritual and earthly. All those who do not bow the knee to Christ, all those who do not confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are, at this point, Jesus' enemies. And if they do not confess Jesus as their Savior, then they are his enemies and will be destroyed. The spiritual enemies will be crushed, will be tossed into the abyss, and all those who go along with them, with them. And it says this about how Christ will defeat them. Under his feet. All of his enemies will be destroyed under his feet. This gives us two images. One, it gives us an image of utter destruction. That there's not even an, a glimpse of our enemy being able to continue. It's the, it's the image of Christ's foot stomping down on the neck of his enemy. Helpless, useless, crushed. But it's also the image of ease. In Psalm 110, God says that he will put his enemies under his feet as a footstool. Meaning that every enemy that we encounter in this life, whether it's earthly or whether it's the devil himself, a devil that we in our own strength could never possibly defend ourselves against. But to Jesus, but to Jesus, it's as easy as kicking up his feet. It's as easy as relaxing. All his enemies will be placed under his feet, and the last enemy to be defeated is death. Now it seems as if Paul is personifying death, that he is a... Uh, a unique entity in and of himself that needs to be destroyed. And of course, we, we confess and we believe that Jesus defeated death when he was raised from the dead. That death has no dominion over Christ. That, death was a, that Christ was able to conquer death by not staying dead, but by being raised again from the dead. Christ defeated him in his own resurrection. And yet, death still crawls around. Does it not? We were just praying for members in our congregation suffering with tumors, suffering with illness, suffering for, with sickness. Death, though defeated by Christ at his resurrection, still continues. There's still death of loved ones. There's still death of children. There's still death of parents, of siblings, of grandparents. But this death will be destroyed even by Christ. And so why is death the ultimate enemy? Because death is the result of all of our other enemies. Sin is an enemy. Sin results in death. The world who opposes us, the world who hates Christ, is our enemy. But yet that enemy leads to death. Death is a culmination of all the enemies that we face in this world. And so when Christ says that he will defeat death, that means that he also will defeat everything that leads to death. Now don't think about what this means. Think about the implications of what this means, dear brothers and sisters. That means sin will be defeated. That means 
premature death will be defeated. That means cancer will be defeated. That means heart tumors will be defeated. That means pain will be defeated. That means suffering will be defeated. That means everything that is evil, everything that is affected by sin will be gone when Christ comes again. No more tears. No more sorrow. All gone. Because Christ will defeat death. This does not fill us with hope. Does this not fill us with an excitement for Jesus to come again? I, I confess, I don't know you very well, but I can tell just because you're humans that there are problems left, right, and center in your lives. All those will be done away with when Christ comes again and destroys all of his enemies. When Christ comes again, we will be brought to bliss. We will be brought to perfection. We will be brought to goodness and joy. Because Christ will come and God shall have dominion. And in one sense, brothers and sisters, that this isn't new to us. Those of us of the Reformed faith, we have gained much comfort from this truth for hundreds and hundreds of years. This future glory, in in some ways, is what wakes us up in the morning. To continue on our Christian walk, to continue on in this life that we have, because one day everything will be good. But I wonder that, even if we know this to be true, if we don't quite think about the implications of it. And so so far in this message, we've talked about three glorious truths. One... That Jesus will return. Two, we will be raised from the dead. And three, all of his enemies will be destroyed. All of Christ's enemies, spiritual and earthly, will be thrown into hell for eternity. This has incredible implications on how we live our lives. Why do I say that? We all know unbelievers in our lives. We have friends who don't go to church. We have co-workers that we rub shoulders with every day who don't know the Lord as their Savior. We perhaps have family members who have not bowed the knee to Jesus. At this point, they are Christ's enemies. And I don't say that, that you should shun them. No, 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 the total opposite. If we believe that Christ's enemies will be destroyed at his coming, then what can we do about it? What can we do about our friend that we call our friend, but we haven't told them about Jesus, that we haven't invited them to church, that we haven't offered them the way in which they can be saved? We're talking about sola Christus today, that only in Christ can Christ's enemies be saved, can avoid destruction. You and I, it says in Romans, that we were enemies. We were enemies against God, but Christ died for us, showed us his grace, showed us his love, and now we are on the winning side of history. But our co-workers who don't know Jesus, our friends, our neighbors don't 
We need to let these things sink into our minds and sink into our hearts. And it's not for a lack of, of reason that perhaps we don't talk to our unbelieving friends and neighbors. But if we take it all the way to its end, I would say it's a lack of love. That when I don't try my best gently, carefully, lovingly, convince my neighbors that they need Jesus, then do I really love them? If I'm friends with somebody, I see them on the weekends, I watch movies with them, I do do whatever with them. But I don't plead with them to know Jesus as their Savior, that I am subjecting them to the very thing that we're talking about today. Destruction in hell. And I don't say this at all to try to guilt you. No, I, I say this to you because you and I have the message that can save those around us. That if they put their trust in Christ alone, then they will be raised in Christ as we will be. And so we come back to what I I mentioned earlier before, kingdom risks. What can man do to me is part of that. What can my friend really do to me if I bring them the gospel? They might reject me. They might not want to be my friend anymore. Well, that is up to them. But the other side of kingdom risks is what can we give to them? Life. Eternal life and joy in Christ. I want to read too. I want to point you to a word in here that is so important for what we're talking about. Verse 25, it says this, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Meaning that today is a day of salvation. That Christ has not returned yet. So that more and more can be called his citizens that more and more can be brought to repentance. Peter says in chapter 3 of 2 Peter that God is patient to return because he desires that all will reach repentance. God is waiting so that we can talk to our friends, so we can talk to our neighbors, give them the life-giving gospel. And so God will destroy his enemies. Third point. But God will also reign as the true king. Christ is king now. Christ is on the throne. Christ is at the right hand of God. And Christ is king because he is the second Adam. I want to flesh that out for a bit. Adam was made to rule over all creation to subject everything under his rule so that God may receive glory in all of creation. 
that all of creation would be filled with image bearers, that God would receive all the glory. Adam failed. Christ comes as the second Adam, as Paul is talking about in, in 1 Corinthians 15, but also in Romans 5, that Christ as the second Adam comes to do what Adam failed to do. God himself comes in the flesh, true God and true man, in order to fulfill the task that Adam should have done but failed in. And so Christ does it perfectly. Christ fills the world with the image of God. Christ fills the world with the grace of God. Christ fills the world with the love of God. Christ fills the world with the salvation of God. Go and make disciples of all nations. And so as the second Adam, as the man who did all that God had commanded Adam, but now commanded Christ to fulfill, has been brought up into the heavenly realm and reigns now as your mediatorial king. Mediatorial means that he is king between, he's the go-between between the Father and us. That he's interceding for us, that he is ruling on our behalf, that he is praying for you to the Father on your behalf. But he is ruling as that second Adam. He's ruling as the better Adam, the, the Adam who failed, but now Christ has succeeded in. And so now I spend time on that because it's really important to understand what's going on in our last few verses, that Christ is king as man, as the second Adam. And there will be a transfer of kingdom as there would have been if Adam had succeeded. The logic of the text. Let's look at this together. All those subjections, it says this. But when, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet, Christ as king, Christ as second Adam. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, meaning that the Father himself is not under subjection of Christ the mediator king. But when all things are subjected to him, the father, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What this means is this, that Christ, as we said many times in the service before, has been highly exalted so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he indeed is Lord. But even in Christ's exaltation, the final goal is the glory of God Almighty. All glory does not remain with the man Christ. Now I need to, I, I need to clarify so we're not getting confused about what I'm not saying. That Christ's mediatorial role as man as the second Adam, is temporary. Because his rule right now is over the world. This world is temporary. This world is passing away. Christ, Christ is head over the church, we confess. This church is temporary. When Christ comes again, the church will be done away with, and we will only have kingdom come. 
And Christ is, is a mediator and representative. There will be no more need for a mediator in the new heavens and new earth because we will see God as he truly is. We will see God face to face. We will be in perfect and utter communion with God with no more need of a mediator king. Now again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that the Son of God as God is subject to the Father. Look at what our text says. It says that when all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that the Father may be all... No. It doesn't say the Father. It doesn't say that the Father will be all in all. It says that God will be all in all. Almighty, triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son of God who finishes his work as the second Adam now receives all the glory as the Son of God with the Holy Spirit and with the Father. That God may be all and all. And having it given back to the Father, now the true King rules over everything. The triune God. That's a glorious little phrase that we end with. That God may be all in all. It speaks of full reign. Speaks of full power over everything. It speaks of that all worship, all service, all honor, all glory, all majesty will be given to God as is rightfully his. No more opposition. No more rebellious hearts. No more enemies, earthly or spiritual. But everything will sing the praises of God Almighty. But it says more than that. It it speaks of the fullness of God in all things. When we look outside, we can see the glory of God. We can see the glory of God in creation. When birds are chirping in the morning, when we see a beautiful sunset, when we see life born from a womb, we see the glory of God in that, do we not? But even in this world, we see as if through a, a glass dimly. But in the new heavens, new earth, when Christ comes again, everything will display the glory of God in full force. All the glory of God will be displayed to us because God will be all in all. Jesus has won. And Jesus will win the war that is fought against him in the church, and we will be ushered into a kingdom where God's glory is manifested. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is manifested in everything and in every one. That God may receive all the glory. I want to end by reading Revelation 21, 22, a few verses from there. I thought about how I could best speak about the glories that are to come in my own words. It wasn't working. So I thought to myself, what's better than God's own word told about, told about his new heavens and new earth? And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. 
And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anything who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and its servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God will be all in all. Let's pray. Our merciful God and Father, Lord, we thank you for Christ. Oh, Jesus, you have won for us our salvation, our salvation that we cling to now in this life. Salvation from our sins, salvation from the condemnation of our sins, but you also are coming again to save us from the wicked one. Save us for your glory. And bring us home to the new heavens and earth. Lord, may we also, by the wisdom and power of your spirit, know truly the implications of this word, of what this means for our unbelieving neighbors. Lord, and how you have given us time now to speak with them, to plead with them, to pray for them, to invite them to church, to tell them about the only way that they can be saved. In Christ alone. His name that we pray. Amen.